and perhaps one day he'll use that knife to track down the missing uh, silver mine, <laughs> national Santa. treasure style. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Jim Bowie was a man who'd lived many lives. He was a swindler, a fighter, a husband, an adventurer, a patriot, and a rebel. His years in Texas had brought him prosperity as well as heartbreak. In 1836, though, he would find his ultimate fate and fame as one of the doomed defenders of the Alamo. This week, we finish our look at the life and death of one of Texas's greatest icons, Jim Bowie. But first, what's your favorite 90s Dallas rock band? Well, I'm going to go with the obvious one and say Hagfish. Uh, one of my favorites besides Hagfish is a group called Bob Goblin and their jumpsuits. And it was a great, great little band from the 90s. They looked very sweaty. And they were quite sweaty. I am a big fan of Chomsky and named for Noam Chomsky. And then they sounded a lot like uh, old XTC records. I didn't like Chomsky as much as their spinoff band, Wiener, which was the world's greatest Weezer cover band. At a time when Weezer was pretty much dead to the world. Right. Yeah. I think that was the time period when Rivers Cuomo was searching for the grand unified theory of the pop song. Well, it was a Dallas supergroup of guys who just wanted to play Weezer songs. And that was pretty cool. It was. It was I think we saw all all nine performances they did. I saw one. <laughs> in 1835, Jim Bowie's life in Texas had given him the highest of highs. With his fame as a fighter and adventurer, fortune and land schemes, and the happiness of a new family with his wife and young children. It had also brought him terrible heartbreak. Cholera killed his wife and children and her parents in the course of one awful week in 1833. Despite his pain and disappointment, though, Texas was not done with Bowie, and once again he found himself caught up in conflict and controversy. As tension rose between the Texan Anglos and the Mexican government, Bowie was an active member of the so-called War Party, led by a young attorney from Anahuac named William Barrett Travis. Travis had done some legal work for Bowie in 1833 and 1834, and had also been active in resisting the pro-Bustamante forces in 1832. The War Party advocated rising up in rebellion against Santa Ana immediately, while the Peace Party under Stephen F. Austin favored a negotiation. Bowie and some friends raided the Mexican armory and unsuccessfully tried to talk the East Texas Indian tribes into joining them against the Mexican government. By September 1835, when Austin returned from imprisonment in Mexico City, it was clear that war was inevitable. After fighting broke out in Gonzales in early October 1835, Bowie was one of the first to join the volunteer army that quickly formed under Stephen Austin, who made him a colonel on his staff. This was a logical decision. Bowie was respected by the Tejanos thanks to family ties and was admired by the Anglos thanks to his legendary reputation as a fighter. Dispute between Austin in charge of the volunteers and Sam Houston, who commanded the Texas regular army, led to a stalemate outside of San Antonio. Bowie and another officer, James Fannin, scouted the area south of San Antonio and together led a force of nearly 100 men to occupy the ruins of the old Concepcion mission where they were attacked by 400 Mexican troops. Bowie's cool command of the battle resulted in a bloody defeat of the Mexican forces. Once again, though, the complicated politics of the Texas Revolt reared its ugly head, and Bowie was caught in the middle. The Texian army laid siege to San Antonio, and on November 3rd, Texas declared itself a separate Mexican state. 
Stephen F. Austin left to help set up a new government, and Edward Burleson was named temporary commander of the army outside San Antonio. Houston was still the head of the regular army, but it wasn't clear if he could command the volunteers. Bowie resigned from the army because he was tired of scouting and spying. Houston offered Bowie a staff position, but Bowie refused, since he wanted to be part of the fighting. He enlisted as a private under Fannin, but was soon a colonel again and back in action. On November 26th, he led a group of men to intercept what was thought to be a pack train carrying silver for the Mexican army in the city. Bowie's men quickly defeated the Mexican cavalry, where they found that the pack train was merely gathering grass for horse feed. Still, the Texian army was encouraged by the skirmish, and on December 5th, the Texian army attacked San Antonio and defeated the Mexicans. Bowie actually missed the battle, as he'd been asked by Houston to go to Goliad with Fannin to determine the conditions there. With the Mexicans ejected from Texas, everyone thought the war was going to be over, and volunteers started to go home or seek new ventures, such as an invasion of northern Mexico. Bowie was Houston's pick to lead such a venture, or at least to form a guerrilla force to harass Mexican forces there, but in the end that venture also got deeply mired in politics. Instead, in January, Houston sent Bowie back to San Antonio to determine if the Alamo could be held against the attack by Santa Ana that was surely coming. Bowie arrived on January 19th with 30 men and orders that if they couldn't hold the fort, to remove the cannon and blow it up. He found less than 70 volunteers and 30 regulars under Colonel James Neal and Lieutenant Colonel William Travis. Most of the ammunition had been taken by men headed south for the Matamoros expedition, and the walls of the old mission had been damaged in the battle in December. But Bowie found that they couldn't leave the fort. They didn't have enough oxen to haul the cannon away in the first place. Later retellings of the story held that Bowie was in conflict with Travis about the merit of staying, but this wasn't the case at all. Bowie is actually the one who said they should hold the Alamo against Santa Ana, while Travis initially argued that he didn't have enough men to risk his reputation on such a mission. Travis eventually came to agree with Bowie and Neal, though. Bowie had written several letters to General Houston and Interim Governor Henry Smith imploring them to send health as he believed, quote, the salvation of Texas depends in great measure on keeping Behar out of the hands of the enemy. It serves as the frontier picket guard, and if it were in the possession of Santa Ana, there is no stronghold from which to repel him in his march towards the Sabine. Bowie and Travis had been acquaintances for many years, but the two men couldn't have been more different. Bowie was rough-hewn and hard-drinking, but was friendly, polite, and obviously familiar with the local Tejano population. Travis was cultured, aristocratic, and gratingly arrogant. Both had a checkered past, Bowie for his schemes and scrapes, and Travis for leaving his family and a mountain of debt behind in Alabama to come to Texas. But both had reinvented themselves in Texas, found prosperity, and were prepared to fight for their new home. Still, while they agreed that the Alamo should be defended, their approaches to command brought them into sharp conflict. On February 11th, Colonel Neal left San Antonio to return home to care for his sick family. This left a question of command. Bowie, as a colonel of the volunteers, was older and had seniority over Travis, who was a lieutenant colonel. Travis was a regular army officer, though, with orders for command from Governor Smith. In the end, Bowie called for an election for the men to choose their leader. It was really no question. Bowie was a regular guy, although a famous one, who had no desire for military discipline, while Travis was a stickler for discipline and all the trappings of professional military life. Of course, both men would have deferred to Alamo newcomer Davy Crockett, the legendary frontiersman and congressman from Tennessee. He had just arrived in San Antonio with 30 men to volunteer their services. Now, if Bowie was one of the most famous men in America, 
then Davy Crockett was absolutely the most famous man alive. But he quietly stood out of the conflict, preferring just to be a simple soldier. Bowie won the election and proceeded to join his men on a rip-roaring drink-up, which was famously portrayed in John Wayne's The Alamo. Travis was incensed, but in the end, they came to a compromise. Bowie would command the volunteers of about 100 men, and Travis would command the regulars and cavalry of about 50 men. For a few weeks, this seemed to work. Travis began organizing the defense and repair of the fortress, while Bowie used his local connections to get supplies and scouting reports on Santa Ana's progress. On February 23rd, Santa Ana's army arrived, and Travis ordered all of the troops into the Alamo. Many civilians also came into the fort, including Bowie's extended family. However, just as Santa Ana arrived, Bowie collapsed with a serious illness. It's not really clear what this illness was. The two surgeons in the fort never identified the disease. From descriptions of the symptoms, however, some historians have said it was typhoid fever or viral pneumonia. The most likely theory seems to be viral pneumonia, since there was little other illness among the Alamo defenders, and typhoid fever would probably have spread much more widely. Regardless of what he had, Bowie spent most of the next two weeks of the siege being cared for by his late wife's cousin and the wife of one of his friends, Juana Navarro Alsbury. He was too weak to even rise from his bed. For a powerful man of action like Bowie, this must have been galling to be so helpless. After a few days of delirium passed and his fever broke, he asked to be carried outside to talk to the men, but his strength never returned. On the night of March 4th, Travis is purported to have drawn his famous line in the sand when he offered all 188 defenders the choice of trying to escape or of crossing the line to stay and face certain death. Bowie, lying on his cot, reputedly spoke up and said, Boys, I'm too weak to cross that line on my own. I'd sure appreciate it if a couple of you would help me across. Four men walked back across the line and carried him across it. Two days later, Santa Ana would make his final attack on the fort. Like so much with the Battle of the Alamo, and indeed with Bowie's life, his fate is the subject of dispute and controversy. Tradition holds that he was lying on his cot in the Long Barracks, one of the remaining buildings of the Alamo complex besides the Mission Chapel. He had two pistols given to him by Davy Crockett, as well as his famous Bowie knife. Near the battle's end, Mexican troops burst into his room, and he shot two soldiers dead before their shots killed him. He was carried out into the courtyard of the mission, displayed to Santa Ana, and along with all of his comrades was burned, and the ashes piled into a common grave. When news finally reached his family back home in Louisiana, his mother Elvie is said to have remarked, quote, I'll lay you odds that they didn't find any bullets in old Jim's back. Of course, no one will ever know how much any of that is true. For every survivor, on both sides, it seems there is a different account of Bowie's death. Don Francisco Ruiz, mayor of San Antonio, reported that Bowie was killed in his bed, and that he'd been ordered to identify the bodies of Bowie, Travis, and Crockett, and that at first Santa Ana had said Bowie was too brave to be burned like a common dog. He later changed his mind. Susanna Dickinson, the wife of Travis's second-in-command, Almorin, and her daughter were the only Anglo survivors of the battle. She reported that she saw Bowie lying dead between two dead bodies of Mexican soldiers. She stated in one of her many later accounts, quote, As the victorious Mexicans entered the room, he killed two of them with his pistols before they pierced him through with their sabers. Enrique Esparza, whose father was one of the Alamo defenders, claimed that Bowie not only shot his attackers, but even took one out with his famous knife in a final blow. On the other side, the accounts are more mixed. A Mexican sergeant named Francisco Becerra claimed he encountered a sick man lying on a bed, whom he intended to spare. 
he witnessed two other Mexicans enter the room who fell before the bedridden man's pistols. Bakura changed his mind and shot the invalid, claiming the two pistols as a war trophy. Now, he never identified the man as Bowie, but there weren't many other sick men in the Alamo. One newspaper article claimed that a Mexican soldier saw him carried from his room alive after the battle, but when Bowie insulted a Mexican officer in Spanish, the officer ordered Bowie's tongue cut out and his still-breathing body thrown into the funeral pyre. Other accounts from the Mexican side have him being killed in his bed without resisting or even unconscious, too sick to get out of bed. Not all accounts back this up, though. An unidentified Mexican captain told Creed Taylor years later that, quote, he did not hear of a sick man being bayoneted while helpless in his bed, but there was a sick man who got out of his bed when the Mexicans entered the fortress and died fighting with the rest. Now, of course, this is Creed Taylor talking, so take that for what it's worth. Even the fate of the famous Bowie knife is lost to history. Although... I would guess that maybe Phil Collins has that in his collection. Have it. His Possibly. private collection that he's not going to give up. Yeah. And perhaps one day he'll use that knife to track down the missing uh, silver mine, <laughs> national that. treasure style. Yeah. It's all hidden behind a bookcase of LP albums from the 80s. Right. Yeah. So the, the secret is in the studio. I would say it's, all, it's hidden in the studio. <laughs> in the end, there's no real way of knowing how Jim Bowie died. It's yet another one of the mysteries and complexities that made up his life. But what is undeniable about Jim Bowie is the legacy he left to the people of Texas and the American West, in life and in death. In the months after the fall of the Alamo, the deaths of the defenders, but most especially of the leaders at the Alamo, Travis, Crockett, and Bowie, would be elevated to iconic status. In the years to come, the stories of Jim Bowie's death led to the stories of his life, each more romanticized and idealized than the last. His famous Bowie knife became one of the great symbols of the American West, alongside the Kentucky rifle and the Colt revolver. In time, the legend obscured the true facts of Bowie's life and became indistinguishable from the man. We've talked in previous episodes about the many movie versions of the Alamo, and of course Richard Widmark's iconic, though not entirely accurate, portrayal of Bowie in John Wayne's film. Sterling Hayden, Kenneth Toby, Alan Ladd, James Arness, Michael Beck, and Jason Patrick all also played Bowie in films and on TV. Less remembered, though, is The Adventures of Jim Bowie, a TV show that ran from 1956 to 1958 on ABC and starred English actor Scott Forbes. This show was developed largely to cash in on the huge popularity of Disney's Davy Crockett series and was set in Louisiana before Bowie went to Texas. In the 1960s, a young singer from England named David Jones took Jim Bowie's last name for his stage identity, although he pronounced it in the English manner and became David Bowie. Today, the aura of Jim Bowie permeates Texas and its identity. There are roads and schools named after him all over the state. Bowie County is in the extreme northeastern corner of Texas, while the town of Bowie is northwest of Dallas on the Red River. Statues, portraits, historical markers, and displays in museums at the Alamo and the Capitol Building all bear witness to the remarkable impact that this extraordinary man had on the history of Texas. This was a long way to get to the end of this story. Yeah, but it's worth it to really unpack this character of Jim Bowie. Uh, and it's more than just the Alamo story, but the Alamo is so central to his life and to his legend that we really needed to take the time to talk about that period of time well yet again yeah. i mean he's texas is han solo yeah well i think it's interesting because you know you talked about it's like well i don't know if he had typhoid or he had pneumonia i remember i don't remember maybe it's in one of the movies or something but 
the story I remember from a long time was a cannon fell on him or that, something. That was the John Wayne okay. Alamo. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, so they, that they was... wanted to make that more dramatic that rather than he just gets sick and falls yeah. down. Yeah. It's like a cannon fell on him and he, yeah. you know, broke ribs or something. Broke his leg. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's, he's iconic, you know, when you listen to the first two parts of the story and even the third part, he's a tough piece of old leather. Right. He, and he's shot and stabbed in a time where you can't get antibiotics. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, I mean, there's, you can rub, you can literally just rub some dirt on it and hope for the best. And, uh, you know, his whole family, all of these, you know, cholera outbreaks, and there were lots of diseases that we just don't even, we don't even yeah, consider it at a time. Yeah. It would be hard mm-hmm. to, to portray how deadly disease yes. is to people in film. I think it doesn't have the same tension it had. Yeah. Perhaps he was an alien <laughs> brought low by yeah. a mere germ. Well, he, one of the sources that I read, they made a point of saying that it, whether it was typhoid fever or uh, viral pneumonia, if he hadn't been, if he wasn't dead in two weeks, he he was getting better. If it was going to kill him, it would have already killed him. So the whole that was kind of to cast doubt on the idea that he was unconscious in bed when the when the attack happened. And a lot of those stories, some of it could just be chalked up to trying to tear down Jim Bowie on yeah. the Mex- propaganda on the Mexican side, and and on the flip side, the heroic stuff of propping him up and elevating him further. Most consensus seems to be he was in his bed. The The story that he was in his bed and he fought and was killed in his bed is probably the true one. Well, he died in the Alamo, which instantly grants you this, puts you in this mythical place yes. of history. But even before that, he was transformed from his becoming, moving to Texas. When, mm-hmm. his, when he moved to Texas and became a Texan and, you know, the way he was a citizen and the way that he fought... Uh, in the fight and was part of that re- important revolution, he was a great and brave soldier. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's just, it's yet another evidence that we've talked about that so many aspects of Texas involve people fail, then they come to Texas and they build a completely new life and they start over. And he was, uh, one report that I read said that he was, when they totaled up his assets after all of his debts still, his his legacy to his mother and in, and his brother uh, in Louisiana was $99. That was all he had to his name. Because hmm. in those two years, he, he largely drunk himself to poverty. Yeah. Um, I, I also find it ironic. Um, the uh, the cash-in TV series, uh, The New Adventures, The, the Adventures of Jim Bowie uh, in the 1950s, you know, Davey, people don't realize, and our parents know, just how huge Davy Crockett was in 1955. I mean, it was... Yeah. I mean, yeah, but well, I think those of us that have seen Back to the Future have right. a glimpse and, of how and Forrest Gump, was. Forrest Gump saying Forrest I'm richer Gump. than Davy Crockett. So, yeah, but the Jim Bowie show was a, was a spinoff of that. And I find it ironic because I was reading about the show and the plot of the show. A lot of the plots, it was a kind of adventure of the week show, but a lot of them were Jim Bowie helping uh, most of the stories involved him trying to get land like trying to buy land but a lot of the stories involved him helping people who had been swindled in land deals hmm. which is kind of ironic <laughs> yeah so it was the bizarro jim Bowie. <laughs> right so how do you guys feel about jim Bowie now that you've done the research and read the story i think that it doesn't change the way i feel about him i think that it just gives me a more complete picture of the character and what he did and what he is and gives me a stronger feeling for really the real man 
rather than the elevated legend. Yeah, I mean, we grow up our whole lives hearing the the highlights of these Texas icons. You know, it's like this is the this is the stuff that sticks and becomes legend. But in the research and the reading, you know, we kind of fill in those those valleys and those shadows of the real person, and it illustrates. You know, it gives us a much fuller appreciation for the accomplishments that he actually had. I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think it tears down the highlights. No, it, it just gives a, it gives a better perspective. Up, right? Yeah, the thing I love about this story and doing this is this was one of the main reasons of doing the show is that it fills out and gives us the very deep view of what we learned in school. What I find interesting about the character of Jim Bowie is that when you see the man he becomes in the revolution, not just in the Alamo, but being humble, wanting to just be a soldier, wanting to serve, but also stepping up, taking leadership when required. And I wonder in in a hypothetical history sort of fashion, if he hadn't been in the Alamo, if he hadn't perished that day, if he hadn't been there, somehow he'd recovered from his illness and he'd been able to survive to the great scrape and he'd been able to be there with Sam Houston and support him, that he would have been one of the pillars of rebuilding Texas, that he would have risen to the occasion of being a patriot and a diplomat, particularly given his great relationship with the Tejano population mm-hmm. of the state. And I think that Texas might have a, a little different history had Jim Bowie survived the Alamo. It's entirely possible. I come and take it. We want to give a big thank you for sticking with us. We know this has been three episodes about an important character in Texas history. We plan to do more of these about an other important historical characters, and we feel that it's really worth it to go into depth. If you have comments, questions about this episode, please feel free to post and, and let us know. But also, if there are other big historical people in Texas that you would like us to really go into depth and talk about, also let us know. Yeah, I mean, we're already planning to talk about Sam Houston, Davy Crockett, um, maybe LBJ someday. Travis Um, and the whole gang. So we want to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. And I'm Max Sean with two N's. And I'm Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway.